You are listening to Out of Our Minds. We are still putting the final touches on the next iteration of the show, but we're really excited about the direction we're heading. And in the meantime, here is a discussion between Pastor Jake Menzel, Pastor Tim Bailey, and Father Bill Mauser. Father Bill is the author of Five Aspects of Man, The Story of Sex in Scripture, a couple of books on Proverbs, and several other books. He's been serving in pastoral ministry since the late 1970s. He's an old friend and compatriot of Pastor Bailey's, as you'll hear. The discussion was recorded from at least two continents, so be patient with the audio quality. I think you'll be edified by it. God bless. For as long as I have known Tim, he has been friends with you, Father Bill. How did you guys meet? I served in one, two, three churches, the last one in Europe, before I came back to the United States. That was the year that the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood was formed, 1987, I believe. In fact, I got some sort of information about their looking for an executive director, and I came close to sending in an application for that. Did not actually do it, but I did form the not-for-profit organization that I'm still the director of, and I wanted to reach out to other evangelical groups that were contending for the faith in this particular area of conflict. All the stuff about confusion of sexuality that was already percolating, boiling maybe, even in the evangelical community at its biggest. And so I reached out to initially Steve Henderson, who was the first executive director. And when Steve vacated that, I think Tim came next. And my first time to meet Pastor Tim face-to-face was at a conference that CBMW hosted in Dallas. I live in a city about 40 miles south of Dallas, and so it was easy to show up at DFW Airport. I think it's the Marriott Hotel. I can't remember for sure. Hyatt Regency. It was Hyatt Regency. There we go. But anyway, my wife and I attended that, and it was during that meeting that Tim and I actually met for the first time face-to-face. I certainly knew of him and his ministry before that. When would this have been? Early 90s or late 80s? or Father Bill and I got to know each other in the beginning of the early 90s. It was right when the internet was getting going. The first thing that happened was that my brother David, actually Steve Henderson was the secretary but not the executive director. They made the decision to move on from a part-time position to a full-time position. And they put out a notice that they were seeking their first executive director. And Kent Hughes and I were pretty close friends, and I had watched the organization. And I had a deep feeling of gratitude to Wayne Grudem for taking the initiative and trying to defend the biblical doctrine of the creation order of man and woman. And so when they put out a notice that they were looking for an executive director, before my dad died in the mid-80s, my dad had said that he thought CBMW would hire me as their executive director. (laughs) 
It was kind of funny to me at the time. He and Kent were close. So anyhow, back in 1996, about, they put out an announcement that they wanted to hire an executive director. And so I communicated with Wayne up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and said that although I could not take the position full time, that I was committed to serving them in any way I could. They brought me up for an interview. And shortly after that, I took on that position as well as being senior pastor of Church of the Good Shepherd, what it was called then, it's now Trinity Reformed Church. The reason I tell that background is that almost immediately, my brother David, who was quite adept technologically, started setting up what was unheard of at the time, which was a sophisticated internet site for CBMW. We felt that that was critical for the organization. And almost from the beginning, it included video, which was really unheard of on websites at the time. Another thing it did was we started an internet discussion group. I forget what it was called, the CBMW list server or something like that. Father Bill was, and I don't use this word often, but I'm going to use it now, and it's completely contrary to his pedigree coming from Dallas Theological Seminary. But he is a man that I would label erudite. It's spelled E-R-U-D-I-T-E. If you don't know the <laughs> word, look it up. You won't begin to understand Father Bill until you know that word. And watching and listening to him write and make his contributions on that listserv, my heart was bonded to him immediately. Hmm. The only other person I would say that when I began to read him, my heart was bonded to him immediately was Doug Wilson. Hmm. And the reason that my heart was bonded to Father Bill and to Doug is that both of them were bloody men. You didn't have to read and listen to them and get to know them very long before you knew that they had suffered for the cause of Christ in their pastoral ministry. And I could talk about a lot more things about Father Bill, but I want to make that very clear that from the very beginning, it was clear he was a principled man and not a pragmatic man. And for that reason, he was excoriated by sleek evangelicals, was robbed of his evangelical patrimony by the hacks that took it over in the mid and late 20th century. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, those hacks, to my chagrin and grief, ended up being the men who led the Council on Biblical Men and Womanhood, whom I had just gone to work for. <laughs> and much of Father Bill's in my life over the next five to seven years was just, I don't know, Father Bill, if you want to describe it, it's just like, oh my goodness. Oh, it was like Lincoln in the Civil War. Can I find a general who will fight? I would agree with all of that. Oh boy, how do I say this without sounding like I'm boasting? I would have to say that every pastorate I have participated in as, as the leader, as the chief elder, every single one of them, from my perspective, has ended in total failure of 
the mission I was setting out to accomplish. When I came back from Europe, I was so discouraged. I thought, nope, not doing that. Thank you very much. As far as pastoral ministry is concerned. And so for the next decade, I never served as a official pastor, you know, wearing the, the rank. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, that's a dead end. Three times, three strikes and you're out. Each failure, as I analyzed it, the initial ones were, I was just so stupid. Dallas, I don't know about other seminaries. I can only speak with the one I attended, but they sent their men out basically untrained, unprepared for the political climate into which they were moving. They were being thrown into the deep end of a pool that was boiling, and they had no idea. In each case, I ran into a situation where I could not operate with my fellow leaders without either committing a crime, literally fraud, in the first pastorate. In the second one, I unfortunately, I was preaching through Matthew. I hit the divorce pastor, and much to my dismay, I ended up getting rid of the view of divorce and remarriage I had received at my seminary training. It's probably one that still I would still disagree with you all. And so what made it bad to be like that is that there was divorce and the remarriage of divorced people was a habit. So me and the elders reached an impasse about a particular pastoral situation. I said, man, we cannot serve. We have no unity with each other. How can we lead this flock together? It's not possible. And so they asked me to leave, actually. And my next place of ministry was in Europe, where I thought to myself, I'm getting out of this context and I'm going to something that is going to be free of that. Well, in some ways that was true. But again, I reached an impasse with the other elders of that church about how the whole church should move. After four years, we coalesced into what looked like an effort on most of the elders to produce an American-style megachurch in a context that was simply not going to allow it to grow. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, darn, <sighs> here we go. And so my wife and I returned back to the States. There were other factors. I had young children by that time too. Before preschools, I was getting uncertain about their education in that context. My wife's parents and my parents, their health was going south. Francis Schaeffer had been publishing works, especially Edith, talking about how they brought an aged parent to Europe. And I thought, no, I don't think we're going to do that. So we returned back to the States. And like I said, when I got back here, I thought, the pastorate is nothing like what I thought it was going to be. (laughs) Nothing at all. 
And so in the midst of that very deep discouragement, as we returned back to the States, we found ourselves approached by people my wife and I had both ministered to on the mission field in Vienna. The Iron Curtain was up in those days. A lot of mission agencies in Vienna who were ministering on the other side of the Iron Curtain. And so it was in Vienna that we began our deep dive into the issues that then characterized my ministry for the rest of my life in one sense. Father Bill, can I interrupt for a second and say that sure. our listeners, one of the things I've been convinced of is that our listeners and younger people have no idea, no idea whatsoever of the significance of the fall of communism at the end of the 1980s and beginning of the 1990s. So when he says the Iron Curtain was still up, what he's referring to is the cataclysmic moment in history when, and Gorbachev just died this last year, I mean, last week, and he was the leader, and Putin notoriously, like the small man he is, he humiliated Gorbachev by not showing up at his funeral. It was disgusting. But, but what happened was the Iron Curtain fell, and I've never said this to you, but the reason I think Father Bill and I have maybe been ahead of the game of evangelical men who make their living off of their PhDs at evangelical seminaries and institutions of higher learning is that we cut our eye teeth in the battle. We didn't cut our eye teeth in the academy. Hmm. We weren't in ivory towers. And Father Bill, when he ministered to people going behind the Iron Curtain, he was ministering to people who were dealing with a cultural context that was so far ahead of where the United States is even today in terms of sexual degradation and the explicit intent and religious destruction of God's creation order. From the very beginning, that's what Marxism was, that's what Leninism was, and certainly that's what Stalinism was. They intentionally tried to destroy the family, they were much like the woke women who started the woke movement of, of Black Lives Matter in our country. And so Father Bill back in the 80s was dealing with the mayhem and destruction of souls coming from the rabid deconstruction of sexuality that permeated the countries of Eastern Europe and Russia behind the Iron Curtain and also China. Whereas I left seminary and I went into the PCUSA, and that was a large pagan Presbyterian denomination. It was a similar thing. It was light years ahead of the sort of effete, fey, precious revoice of all of the PCA hacks today. They knew what they were doing, and they knew and made no bones about the fact that they were opposed to God in the PCUSA. And so I have not realized that until just now listening to you, Father Bill. But knowing that your ministry started there in Vienna and that it had its roots in the cross iron curtain ministry of people, and that my ministry was in the PCUSA coming out of the feminist union shop that produced Tim Keller, known as Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, <laughs> I all of a sudden have a bit better of an understanding why we were blood brothers from the inception of our relationship. 
to add an amen to what Tim has just said, when I found that listserv and later it became a Yahoo group that I kind of took over from the listserv, David and Tim wanted to step back from that at one point. And I found it extremely helpful to have some like-minded Christian leaders, both officers of the church and committed lay people who were thinking to engage in conversation and debate. Sometimes we had disagreements. And then what really got exciting was when some of the evangelical feminists joined the group, and boy, did we mix it up. (laughs) I ran into Tim and people I met through that listserv and the group. I thought, ah, man, this is so helpful. Mm -hmm. And it was an engagement with the spirit of the age that I frankly could never find in any of the rank and file flocks that I ministered to. And certainly you couldn't find it in CBMW. Well, (laughs) when I first looked at CBMW, I immediately had a problem with something I think Tim also had a problem with, and that's this term complementarianism. I used the term in the spirit of collegiality. I wanted to engage these men. I wanted to hear them. I wanted them to hear me. I wanted to, you know, with some really top national leaders, I thought, wow, maybe we can iron sharpening iron. That was the hope I had. It didn't turn out that way, but it was precursed by the very term they chose to Mm -hmm. represent their point of view. And as the evangelical feminists quickly realized, they could say, uh-uh, well, we're complementarians too. We believe the sexes are complementary. That wasn't the issue. The issue right, right. how are you complementary? Father Bill, let me say a couple of things here. My first meeting of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Woman that I was still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And I showed up at the meeting, and you know, there's 20 guys, at least two-thirds of them either rich or famous, and most all of them with the terminal degree, as they put it. And Dan Heinbach, he was a professor at Southeastern Baptist, and at that time, Paige Patterson was the president there. And Dan Heinbach and I had grown up together at College Church, and we I, I knew him somewhat. But anyhow, he made a proposal that the council make a statement opposing women in combat. And of course, at my first meeting as the executive director, I wasn't saying anything. I was just listening and observing. But I was shocked when immediately Wayne Grudem shut it down. And Dan Heimbach is a little bit of a naïve he means well. He's got the training. He thought everybody would be in favor of that, but he had no clue they wouldn't be in favor of it. And what Wayne Grudem said is, no, no, no. We don't make statements about civic and public square, and we are focused on the church and the home. And that was the end of it. Hmm. And Father Bill and I could talk at great length about the stage four cancer 
a crass complementarianism of refusing to acknowledge that God created Adam first and then Eve, and that this is not a private Christian truth, that this is binding on all men across all creation, and that if you're going to try to give Satan the secular world, if he will allow you to fight for the church and the home, you're going to get snookered like every other person that's trying to bargain with Satan gets snookered. And so that is the direction I expect our conversation will take. But I want to say one other thing, which is very important. Battles that are theological in nature are never lacking character in individuals. In other words, if you are tempted to be fey and a feet and a feminine in your defense of God's truth and therefore hopeless, it will manifest itself in the doctrinal positions you take, but its origin is in you being fey and a feet and a feminine, in you being a coward and you not having faith and you not willing to do the hard work of bleeding for the cross. Okay? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, Father Bill, but it's time for us to leave a deposit of tr truth. I remember very distinctly Wayne Grudem's response about you. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with doctrine, although he did bring up the issue of your discussion of the meaning of the word sexuality with respect to the Godhead and the Trinity. And he made it clear that he was a little uncomfortable with it, okay? It's interesting that the only other man that Wayne ever told me he had a lack of comfort with his positions was Doug Wilson. I once said that I was going to get, offer reforming marriages as a premium to givers to CBMW. And I got a nine-page letter from Wayne, single space, typed, nine pages. I still have that letter. Absolutely decimating every thought, every word, every opinion, Every little bit of Doug Wilson's, I don't know what to say, oeuvre. <laughs> and so what I want to point out is that on the one hand, we can discuss doctrine and talk about the failure of complementarians to recognize and confess the true nature of the creation order. And that's probably the most important thing for us to talk about. But I also want to say, I quickly realized that most of these men had no use for anyone who lacked the terminal degree, and preferably from Oxbridge, or maybe Germany if you're John Piper. And I abominate such pride, because what I have seen is there is no connection with the possession of a terminal degree and one's ability to defend God's truth. Unless it's a negative one. I say that categorically, and yes, you could argue that it's a negative correlation. And so, Father Bill, the problem with you was that you didn't have the pedigree you needed to have. I hate to tell you that, but that's the plain truth. <laughs> and why I had the pedigree and was hired as executive director, I don't know. Do you want to guess? Because I can tell you. Well, and you certainly have the Emilio legacy. Yeah, that was it. My father was Joe Bailey, and my father-in-law was Ken Taylor. So apparently being evangelical royalty meant I didn't have to have the terminal decree. And so I want to make it clear that the failure in this battle has been twofold, not just onefold. It hasn't just been a failure of doctrine. 
It's been a failure of character. It has been men who were unwilling to ever oppose the intellectual elite who had degrees. It's not merely a compromise or an abandonment of classic Christian doctrine about the sexes. It immediately generates disastrous strategic decisions concerning ministry. And I have an anecdote to share about that with Wayne Grudem and CBMW. I'm always was trying to tug on CBMW's coattails to see if I could engage them somehow. And there came a time, the 501c3 that I created was really at the instigation of a senior vice president of navigators. This man was a committed, he would probably have said he was a complementarian, meaning men are leaders and women are helpers. At that point in ministry, in the very top circle, the president and the three or four vice presidents, that small group at the top of navigators began to debate a policy change where women in navigators would become the supervisors of men in navigators. Yeah, 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 yeah. At that point, leadership of groups, I don't know what the table of organization was or is today, but men at the very top were organizing all the way down. Groups were led by men. There were women navigators involved in navigator ministry to other women. They were segregated by sexes along roughly lines that the scriptures would bless. But mm -hmm. at the very top, they put their fingers in the wind and they knew which way it was blowing in evangelicalism. And they were saying, look, man, if we're going to maintain credibility, we've got to put women in charge of all of these different levels. We've got to erase the sexual bifurcation of leadership. Only one vice president opposed that. And he was a founding board member of our organization. Soon thereafter, Paul came to me, this vice president, and said, Bill, look, I really wish you would come and conduct a seminar for our group of the president and the four by the five men and lay out for us the biblical case for not doing what they were about to do. And I said back to him, I said, Paul, I'm a nobody. I'm less than a nobody. They've never heard of me. As Tim has pointed out, I don't have the credentials that would instantly command credibility with them. I said, let me approach CBMW and see if I could get one of their men to join me in making this seminar to the very top echelon of leadership in navigators. And Paul said, you know, I think that's a good idea. Go for it. The person I contacted was Wayne Grudel. And in correspondence with him, I think he was in Chicago at point. I said, Wayne, I will fly to Chicago and we will sit down together where I can lay out the case 
of the model, the biblical model we're championing and lets you really understand it. And he had somehow gotten hold of some of our materials and had run across the idea that basically it was men as the glory of God, that men share something of God's, I hate to say essence, because that's loaded too much in the wrong direction. But men are masculine if they're right creatures, and God is too. Our, our God is a patriarchy, dang it. You know, he's an eternal father with an eternal son. Well, Wayne had gotten hold of this, and I still have in my files a letter from him to me that says, I really don't want to join you in this enterprise. I don't want to do it because I really don't agree with you about the nature of God the Father. He evidently seems to think that's an arbitrary metaphor or something. I, 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 out I don't really know. And it, oh, my goodness, the irony. My point is the strategic decision, he had an opportunity, a door open to affect the policy and ministry of something as international as navigators. I presented that to Wayne, and he flushed it. Mm -hmm. Because, no, I guess I would sully him somehow in whatever it was he was contending. Father Bill, I worked with him for four years on the phone with him every day with him constantly. And I can tell you it was cultural. The fact is Wayne Grudem made a decision that he was not going to fight on the secular front and that CBMW would be limited in its fighting to protecting the perquisites of Christian men in the church and home. And so any ontological approach to sexuality was inimical to his whole project. Anything that made it less than arbitrary? Well, I wouldn't say arbitrary because he did make his name off of doing computer searches of ancient literature on Kefale and stuff like that. And he was willing to be atomistically scrupulous about the meaning of kephalae. But, but fortunately, again, it's a private Christian thing. I went through the same thing with him with Promise Keepers. I went through the same thing with him with Campus Crusade, with Wheaton College, and with the gender-neutral Bible controversy and also with Dallas Theological Seminary. And so you bring up navigators, which you know personally, but again and again, CBMW utterly failed, utterly failed at any of the things that they tried to fight. And the reason is they fought with one arm tied behind their back, and it was their right arm, which is the fact that God has created Adam first, then Eve, and that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. 20 years ago, I had always thought that feminism was an attack upon the biblical doctrine of anthropology. I had always thought that it was focused on man. And so I always put it in the category of anthropology. And then it came to me that feminism is not actually opposed to anthropology, biblical anthropology. What it's really opposed to is the fatherhood of God. Feminism 
hates, hates, hates fatherhood of God. It hates authority. It hates anything that causes us to tremble before the holy God who will judge us all. And once I realized that, it was very clear that the battle wasn't anthropology, but theology. I don't know if you agree with that, Father Bill. Oh, definitely. I mean, I got this statement of that most, for the first time, really clearly from Steve Hutchins, a senior editor at Touchstone. And he was always there, still is, I think, their go-to editor when the organization wanted to engage feminism or Christian feminism. And he said in one of his essays that I stumbled across many years ago that egalitarianism is not a mistake of anthropology. He almost said it the way you just did. He said, because of the incarnation, because God became a human being in the person of a man, a human man, and he is still incarnate in that human man. Mm. He said there is a absolutely straight line from this mistake in anthropology to a mistake in theology proper. Mm. Whatever you mistake in anthropology as it applies to our Lord, it will produce the same and even worse you begin to undo the Trinity itself, the very nature of the Godhead. Hmm. That's an idea that explains almost everything we've seen in the last 40 years in, in North American Protestantism. And it's also an idea that the rank-and-file evangelical man and pastor, they simply have no clue. About they have no clue. No clue at all. They have no clue. And that is debilitating, discouraging, disgusting, all the D words to me. It's very hard to live with that. It's been very hard to live with that with my own family who own Tyndale House and have maybe led the movement to neutered Bible translations. It's been very hard to deal with with my friends from Gordon Conwell. It's hard to deal with with Tim Keller's deconstruction of sexuality, which has led the PCA, my denomination of 20 years, it's been very hard to deal with that. And as I have my final years and think about what books to write, this morning I was in bed and I was thinking, if I could get out of the model of writing books about fatherhood, the eldership, the pastorate, marriage, what we need is a book on authority, because I've come to believe that that is the deepest heresy permeating the most conservative branches of the Protestant church today. People hate authority, hate it, and it all flows from the fatherhood of God. That's my conviction. I believe that we have taught and preached in such a way as to cause there to be the death of the fear of God in the biblical church. And I don't think there's any way that that comes from anything other than the death of fatherhood. Father Bill, when I went into the ministry, I had a good father. I had a good father. 
Okay. And when I went in the ministry, I subscribed to a journal called the Reform Journal. It was published up in Grand Rapids. It was thoughtful. By the way, I want to make a comment about the list server and Yahoo and that thing we were involved with at the beginning of the internet. Anybody listening to this will think that it's something analogous to social media today. Ugh, not in the least. We had posts regularly that were thousands of words, and the next poster would actually respond to the arguments made above. All right. I got that out of my system. Let me return to the Reform Journal. The Reform Journal had an article, and the article was about the fatherhood of God, in which what he did was he assembled quotations from present respectable exegetes and historical Orthodox Reform men, showing that the fatherhood of God is not a metaphor, but it's God's essence. And that to deny God's fatherhood is to deny the Trinity, okay? And he used as a quotation, Ephesians 3, for this cause I bow my knee before God the pater, Greek, from whom all patria, pon patria, in heaven and earth gets its name. And then he quoted, are you ready for this, Father Bill? He quoted F.F. F. Bruce. <laughs> saying that this declared that fatherhood all was received from the archetypical, the original, the first father God, okay? We are derivative fathers. We're not. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It, God is not called father because that helps us to understand him in some way, but we are called father only insofar as we, in some horribly limited and deficient way point to God, the Father. And then I read Don Blesch. Don Blesch was the friend. He was neo-Orthodox. I have to admit that. I tried to get him to not write his book on the inspiration and authority of Scripture until he changed his position. But he was neo-Orthodox. He was a dear friend who taught at Dubuque, published out the Wazoo Articles books, wrote a systematic theology, InterVarsity Press published. Don Blesch wrote a book called The Battle for the Trinity. So I read this article in the Reform Journal, and I read The Battle for the Trinity at the beginning of my ministry when I was in the PCUSA. And The Battle for the Trinity is about 125, 150 pages making the argument that if we refuse to call God Father, we are not Christians. <laughs> and here I'm coming from the feminist hotbed of... Gordon Conwell, growing up in Wheaton, now in the PCUSA, and I go to a Presbytery meeting shortly after reading Don Blesch's book in that article, and there's this, I'm sorry, but I'm going to use the word, this, are you ready? This chick. <laughs> this woman, this young woman who stands up and refuses to confess the fatherhood of God. She refers to God as God this, God that, God the other thing. And when she gets done making her profession of faith, and mind you, InterVarsity had top leaders who were in that presbytery. She gets done reading her confession of faith, and I said, ma'am, I noticed that you did not ever refer to God as fatherhood. And she said, well, yes, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there are some of us who are very uncomfortable with calling God father. 
as if I was a rube from the rural muck rates. And I looked at her and I said, actually, yes, I am aware of that. And that's, that's why I asked a question. And I said, do you believe the confession, which says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty? Do you believe? And I went through the Westminster, I went through a number of our confessions. And do you know, she refused to confess God as Father. She was then voted on for ordination to pastoral ministry. I was the only vote against her. And so, I think I want to bring it back to the discussion by saying that you and I had fought battles long before any connection to CBMW that made it very clear to us that it was not a question of who was in the pulpit Sunday morning and who was in the board meeting during session meetings, but it was a question of whether or not true Trinitarian faith would continue to be confessed by the church. And Wayne Groom and his sidekicks at CBMW never could grasp that. I want to make a point that picks up on a feature of Tim's contention that maybe down at the very deepest roots there is an opposition to authority. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that, if you're not opposed to authority, is most definitely you as a pastor, if not already, you are going to face repeated challenges to your faith in the form of will you submit to what God has said and how God is leading you. I have had people offer me what they intend as a compliment that I am a man of faith. And when they say that to me, there's something in my soul and definitely a change in my faith that is a rolling of the eyes. And I think, oh my gosh, the places where they would say my faith was greatest is the place where God boxed me into a corner. And the only options in front of me were deny the faith or to bend my knee to what was terribly hard. Mm-hmm. Been the me only because I was convinced that his word would prevail. Yeah. And then for me to be complimented for my faith becomes ludicrous. <laughs> do what God has told me to do, or what the scriptures have told me to do, or to take a headlong dive straight into hell. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I got out of the official pastorate for over a decade. Hmm. Because I said to my wife one time, I said, honey, I can't be like Jesus. I can't be perfect. <laughs> and I don't want to become like the devil. <laughs> and it seems to me I'm going to have to be one or the other if I continue in pastoral ministry. <laughs> and so I, I said, okay, I'm on the sidelines with me. Because then I have a hope still of being able to bend the knee willingly to how he's led me. Now, is that faith? Well, yeah, uh, I suppose so. It could just as well be self-serving. I mean, who wants to go to hell? 
And when I bend the knee to God, I promise you, in those kinds of situations, you're still going to hurt like hell. Mm -hmm. You'll suffer. Mm -hmm. And I have talked about those obliquely already. Tim could talk about it probably endlessly because he's been there and done that more than I have. Where, where would you say that you have suffered most for God's truth over the years? The last time Tim was in my living room, just on the other side of that door, he said something. I think he's the first man in all of my life who ever said it the way he did. He said something to the effect that my life in ministry has been marked heavily with loneliness. I almost broke out weeping, mm -hmm. not in discouragement, but I think you were the first man I've ever run into who could see that. That was a mm -hmm. consequence of my life mm -hmm. that I have borne. I am in so many ways a very lonely servant of our Lord. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons I cherish almost about my own life, what I have in my wife, but most particularly in my relationship with a number of men that are fewer than the fingers on this hand. <laughs> and none of them have ever said to me what Tim did, and he's telling the truth. Yeah. Listen, Father Bill, it has been easy. This is weird doing this on a podcast. But Father Bill, it has been such a joy to me to listen and read and watch you through the years. It's been so strengthening to me. And, you know, honestly, I've escaped some of this because of my connections. You know what I'm saying? They still have to talk to me because I'm at their family reunions and they have to act polite. Yeah. And it's important people who act polite to me. <laughs> And so that must mean I'm something. And, you know, I fight with Doug Wilson over Pato communion and over the whole belligerent COVID stuff. And people get so uptight about that, but I don't think they realize that there are very few men left anymore that I'll fight with, <laughs> you know, because there are very few men that I care about because there are very few men who I recognize as giving themselves for the kingdom of God. And so I'm going to pay tribute to you because it's good and right to do it. I have no one else like Father Bill. I have no one else like Barbara, your wife. You have not been ashamed of the gospel at the point of attack, at the gap in the wall. You have not pulled your punches. And it's imperative that people know that the heroes that they think have defended the faith are not the heroes. They're the ones who promote themselves. But I have not yet seen you do that, Father Bill. And I have such a deep debt of gratitude. And Father Bill, you know I feel this way. I'm not saying this to you for the first time. Yeah. But I want, I want the people listening to know that it's not Al Mohler, and it's not Wayne Grudem, and it's not Don Carson, and it's not J.I. Packer, <laughs> that have kept me 
with my nose to the grindstone in my ministry. It's Doug Wilson, it's Father Bill, it's my brother David, and actually, it's Jake Menzel and Jody Killingsworth and David Crow. It's the men that I've worked with in ministry who actually, Father Bill, you've met. And also, I will say, Steve Hutchins, oh my goodness. You mentioned him up at Touchstone. So I, I think it's appropriate in this podcast to pay tribute. And it's because I have such a deep debt of gratitude to the men who have turned away from success to faithfulness. I know that sounds so hackneyed. It sounds like I wrote it for Twitter. But please understand that I am utterly sincere and I don't throw out compliments. I'm not a flatterer. And so I want to make it very clear to you, brother, and also to you, Jake. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm being honest. I don't know where I would be, Father Bill, without men like you guys. I mean, honestly. Well, when I first came to then Church of the Good Shepherd, now Trinity Reformed Church, I had spent eh, a couple years being batted around through InterVarsity and Campus Crusade in the Religious Studies program at IU. I felt very lonely and out on the edge. And what I found in our church was I didn't have to feel alone and I didn't have to feel crazy. I could stand on scripture. And that is what God did. And even thinking, Father Bill, we use a curriculum at our church plant that is based on a curriculum called David's Mighty Men. That is based on this thing called five aspects of man that you may be familiar with, but that is now used in one form or another in a number of evangel churches in their men's ministries. And you may have no idea that that's the case, but the men's ministries of Evangel Presbytery have all benefited, whether any of the men involved realize it or not, directly from your ministry. And not just in a friendship with Tim and iron sharpening iron kind of way, but hey, where do we look to build something here that's going to help the men in our pews grow as men of God? And we look to you. I really do think it's true. The men who have fought, the men who have suffered are the men who have carried influence and who God is using and are the real heroes. And you don't get to see who they are, but God does. And you are one of those men. Well, I've been bookmarking part of our discussion for a while because it's something that's really fascinating to me. I want to hear your perspective on how the landscape has changed when it comes to biblical sexuality. And this ties into, I think, the influence, the fruit of your ministry, both of your ministries over decades now. You met through a listserv in the 90s. And my sort of perspective is the 90s feel sort of like peak institutional homogenization. And that you had some things like the listserv that you could be a part of where you didn't have to feel so alone and outside of the pale. And then through the early 2000s, we have 9-11, we have the sort of blogging revolution, the introduction of new media, and a kind of breaking up of institutional authority, and a polarization of America. So now in an odd way to me, it feels both more and less safe 
to hold to biblical sexual orthodoxy, if that makes sense. So where there was a time that felt very conformist and very centrist, and to be anywhere outside of the mainstream felt super risky. And today, you're on one extreme or another. And if you're outside of your bubble, it's really scary and risky because it's super intense. But there is an actual bubble, a pocket, where it feels safer than ever because people are able to find each other more easily than they ever have and to build each other up and to sharpen each other. But you guys were there for every step along the way. And so I just want to sort of, if I'm to sort of take the baton forward, I need to understand as best as I can where we've come from and where we're headed. And I want to be sure I understand where we've come from and what's changed over the last 30, 40 years in this fight. Father Bill, have at it. Well, two things come out. Something that has not changed, which I'll mention last, but as we look at who consumes the materials we produce over the last 35 years, 40 years, I'm going to use the word that's terrible. The initial market, the initial consumers, the people that say, whoa, let me have a lot more of that, please. That was almost exclusively female. And it was women in the church whose mothers were usually feminists. And they were reared and encouraged and formed to be feminists themselves, even in the church, by their mothers. And they get into their late 20s or to early 30s, and they begin to doubt seriously that what feminism has told them about themselves is that it is harmful, that it is disappointing. Mm -hmm. Women in the church who've been there and done that with feminism, religious or not, they begin to think this was a mistake. What is the correct thing to think about myself and how to live? And they come in contact with materials we're producing, none of which is original with us. Not. What we have done is is collected thematically the teaching of Scripture and try to present it in a way that is comprehensible and touches men or women in who they actually are as creatures, males and females created in the image of God. They run across these materials and they go, wahoo, this is coherent, it's biblical, it touches my soul as a creature. Now, they may not think of it that way in those exact terms, but that's what's going on. And man, do they grab onto our materials. Mm -hmm. What's changed is that this generation that originally launched our organization in terms of demand for what we were doing and what we're producing, that generation is now beginning to fade away. Those women are old women or dead women, and they are replaced instead by their children who, for the first time, were totally reared in a thoroughly feminist culture. <laughs> the memory of a Christian patriarchy is dead by 9-11. It really is. It's a memory. It's what grandma thinks. Mm-hmm. And grandma 
well, the dear old girl, but no, she doesn't know. So these younger women are casting around. It's not that they tried feminism and found it failing. They flatly don't even know what womanhood is. Mm -hmm. They feel like they're groping in the dark, padding the walls, trying to find any definition. Where am I as a sexual creature? Feminism has made them as far as it possibly can into men. And now we're going biologically to affect that too, if that's what you want. So that's a big change. It used to be disappointed feminists in the church who were trying to remake the church and their religious feminist ideas. Today, we find women who don't even know who or what they are as female creatures. Okay, that's what I see as a big change. Here's what is not changed from the very beginning when we produced and offered five aspects of woman and five aspects of man as two separate curricula. The reception of the manhood materials, a manhood theology, the manhood Bible study, it had a pathetically dismal reception. For every unit of material we would ship out for men, we would ship out 20 for women. <laughs> and that's grown less over time. The evangelical Protestant men aren't interested. They, they're not having any. Thank you very much. We'll pass on that. And the leaders of that group, and this is what makes me want to pull what remains of my hair out, the leaders of that group are the pastors of the evangelical church. They're appalled by what we are proclaiming. And they have driven us out of their churches. There used to be our materials were used as a standard feature in the Christian education roster of churches, lots of churches, all Protestant churches, and even a few Roman Bible studies. Women who would get together, Roman women. But as time went on, this is controversial. And what pastor wants to import a fight into his block? Well, mm -hmm. Ireland do. And if they see something coming in that they think, oh, that's controversial. We can't have any of that. And so I don't think today five aspects of man and woman are not welcome in churches, in Protestant churches. It's always been that way. And if anything, it's only intensified over the last 40 years. Now, why this is the case, we can speculate here. I didn't waste very much time trying to research it. I have some ideas. I certainly think pastors as a group, not President Company accepted, obviously, but as a group, Protestant leaders, elders and pastors, that stratum, are either cowards, they don't want to fight, they don't want a mess in their flocks, or they are so career-minded that they will deliberately erase from their, the boundaries of their use anything that is controversial and only allow in what they discern is extremely popular and pleasing to the sheep. Father Bill, can I address this? Please. 
about two years ago, I was supposed to start on my next book. The elders had set out a program for me where I was supposed to finish a book a year, my last seven or so years in ministry. And I had done church reformed. I had done elders reformed. It was time for pastors reformed. And I kept sidling up to it and looking at it and thinking about it and waking up in the morning, lying in bed, cogitating on it. And I don't want to be nasty, but in my final year or two of ministry, I realized that I could not write pastors reformed. My experience has been that pastors do not love their sheep or their savior and have no commitment to protecting and defending and feeding the flock of God that his son purchased with his own blood. Now, I know that that is a pretty intense indictment, but let me say, I know a lot of pastors. I knew them in seminary. I've kept up with them. And there are pastors who fear God and who defend the flock and who have a ministry characterized by faithfulness. But after about 20 years out of seminary, I had the same experience as you had when I left seminary. I got out of seminary and I ran into a couple in our church that were committing adultery, and it was a small church, and the whole church revolved around them, and it was obvious they were committing adultery. And I was like, am I an idiot, or is everybody in this small town an idiot? Seriously. And eventually, I had to confront the situation. It just about blew up the entire area. And I was on the phone with my brother-in-law, Pete Taylor, and I said to Peter one night, I said, Peter, I want you to know that seminary has absolutely nothing to do with training a man to be a shepherd of God's flock. Peter, let me repeat that. Seminary has absolutely nothing to do with preparing a man to care for God's flock. I said it twice. Since then, it's become clear to me that what seminary actually does is the opposite of what it should do. What it actually does, what its actual curriculum is, is that if you ever have conflict or controversy in your church, you have failed. That is the universal message of every class, every administration, every paper you write. If there is ever controversy in your ministry, you have failed. You are responsible. You have failed. And I don't understand. So, Father Bill, recently, in the last five years, I had the privilege of going through Wittenberg with Brian Bunn. He's a United pilot, and he got me a free ticket over to Germany. And he took me on a tour of Worms and Wittenberg and all this stuff, and we sucked it in. And then I read Martin Bucer, Calvin's best bud up in Strasbourg. And Father Bill, you know what I realized that I had never realized before? That the Reformation was actually not about sola fide, and it was actually not about sola scriptura. Now, I'm not saying that it wasn't about them, but the center of the Reformation was men like Luther and Knox and Calvin realizing that the sheep had no shepherd and were harassed and helpless, and that they had to speak up and feed and defend 
the sheep. That really, guys say that the Reformation was an incredible renaissance of preaching. But what the Reformation actually was, was a recovery of pastoral ministry. And out of that came sola fide and sola scriptura. And so, you know what I'm saying, Father Bill? And what we have today in the Reformed Church and in the Evangelical Church is a bunch of posers who don't fear God, who will not defend the faith at the gaps in the wall. And so I didn't write the book on pastors. I wrote a book on marriage instead. Okay? As I thought about it, I thought, I love Mary Lay, and I love marriage, and I think that's what I want to write on. <laughs> but Father Bill, in the last two months, all of a sudden, I'm ready to write a book to pastors. Isn't that weird? And I think it's going to be titled, Feed My Flock. Because what I've realized is that Peter was as much a screw-up <laughs> as you and I and every other pastor is. And what love of our Lord to Peter on that shore of the Sea of Galilee that morning after his resurrection, when he restored Peter and gave him the command of feed my flock. And I wonder whether pastors might not hear that. They might not be willing to listen to me harangue them. But what about our Lord pleading with such a failure as the Apostle Peter <laughs> at that moment covered in shame? Yeah. And so I'm with you totally. I've been so disillusioned about seminaries and pastors. That's why we have New Geneva Academy. We don't believe that it's possible any longer to turn over to the academy, the training of shepherds. It's been a bust. It's utterly failed. But I wonder whether there aren't young men who actually love God and who actually love Jesus Christ and his blood and who actually love his sheep and who are actually willing to be poor, to be despised, and to bark and growl. How do you produce that? I'm not saying you can't. I'm just curious. I, I, I'll never figure that one out. I'm not saying you can't. <laughs> it has to be the work of the Spirit of God. We have to pray. We need help. That's part of why I wanted to do this episode, right? I wanted to sit and hear what God's done through... 70 plus years of ministry experience of failure and weakness and trembling. And yet I see the fruit in my own life. I see the fruit in my church. And so I guess we probably should wrap things up soon. So as we close the conversation, here I am. You have decades of life and experience and seeing God work. Our listeners may not know, Father Bill, that you are engaged in a fight with cancer and facing death. Some of us in God's wisdom are surprised. Some of us see it coming and watch as it draws near. I'm not sure how to ask the question, but I want to know what God's been teaching you and what you would say to somebody like me if you had one thing to say. Something that's comforted me particularly as I have tried to convey what the Bible says, 
and gotten what I've gotten for doing that is the realization that as painful and disappointing and lonely as that service has turned out to be, nevertheless, I am convinced of this. And it greatly comforts me, and I hope it will comfort you as you go through similar things. When people listen to you and say, no, 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 even if it's very polite, you have been at that point our Lord's agent <laughs> in revealing the thoughts and the intents of their hearts. You are his instrument of, we hope, discipline. And if not that, you are his instrument of judgment. <laughs> the idea, for example, that you go out and evangelize and nobody embraces the gospel that you speak to, and you think, I have thought about myself, well, that was a failure, total failure. No, no, no. Spiritual markers moved because you presented the gospel to the unbelieving heart. And if the heart didn't soften, oh, the old Puritan proverb that says, the sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. That is true. And it keeps on being true inside the church. The second thing I'd say is that throughout my lifetime, when I have bowed the knee, and it was reluctant, okay? The Lord has been amazingly gracious, kind, and here's the thing, really generous to me. Mm -hmm. And I cannot look at how my life has proceeded and think to myself, boy, God really had a thorny patch for me to wade through. Uh -uh. Yeah, there were thorny patches for sure. But what's going on with cancer right now has been true of my whole life. When I get stuck in the briar, a hitch as it were, it is God's design to bring me to the place where I am. He is finished with me. He is, I am his workmanship. The scriptures say so. Okay, there it is. I'm his workmanship. And I think when he's finished with you and me and him and everybody else, we leave this place. And my, what looks like almost certain death from this cancer, turns out to be a stage on which the Holy Spirit and I are finally mopping up whatever it is that God is doing to conform me to the image of Christ. Now that, I can't talk about that very much without becoming unraveled. <laughs> but I am so happy. I am so happy. I really am. And this song I used to sing at First Baptist Church in a town of 3,000, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And dang it, that hurts sometimes. Mm -hmm. The truth still there. Mm -hmm. And you obey, there is joy. There is real, real joy that will take you out. So... Don't be discouraged when it gets hard, and it will, but it's worth it. Oh my gosh, is it worth it? And 
I haven't seen how much it's worth yet. I'll see it when I die. Mm-hmm. So will you. So hang in there. Don't give up. The pressures will be great to do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's worth it. What I wish is that pastors would be willing to die for the truth, for love for God, but also for love for their mothers and their sisters and their wives. And it would be death because it's utterly humiliating to go through what you and I have gone through. (laughs) Can you imagine how many people laugh at us, Father Bill? And so when you were talking, it wasn't trust and obey that was going through my mind, but it was, oh, love that will not let me go, oh, cross that seeketh me through pain. I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory, dead. And from the ground there blossoms life that shall endless be. And so, Father Bill, I bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not presumptively, but by faith. And I give you thanks, deep, deep thanks, deep, deep thanks, you and your wife, Barbara, for the many ways that you have strengthened me through the years. Okay? Thank you, Jack. And don't ever forget this, Father Bill, because I I don't just, I'm not a liberty gibbet. (laughs) I don't just throw that stuff out. And so you tell Barbara what I'd said, And I praise God for how he has given you to me and to also the men that look to me pointing to you. Out of Our Minds is a production of New Geneva Academy, training pastors and elders in a local church context. For more information, go to newgenevaacademy.com. Once again, we are working on the next iteration of the show, and that should be in your ears shortly. In the meantime, you can support this work at patreon.com forward slash out of our minds. That is also the way to support and help us to produce and release the next season of The World We Made, which we will be releasing as soon as we reach a certain amount on patreon.com forward slash out of our minds. That season is on abortion in a post-row world. Help us make it there. Go to patreon.com forward slash out of our minds. And until next time, stay sane.